I have a master's degree from one of the most elite screenwriting institutions in the world. And I showed up at elementary thinking I was the shit and learned in about 10 hours that I didn't know what the fuck I was doing. Brian Smith here, and welcome to the Dream Path Podcast, where I try to get inside the heads of talented creatives from all over the world. My goal is to demystify and humanize the creative process and make it accessible to everyone. Now let's jump in. Jeffrey Paul King is on the show. Jeffrey is the creator and showrunner of the CW Network series, Republic of Sarah, about a passionate yet rebellious high school teacher who discovers a legal loophole that allows her town to declare itself an independent nation. The show explores what would happen if a town of a few thousand people became a separate country nearly overnight. Jeff previously was a writer and producer on all seven seasons of Elementary, starring Johnny Lee Miller, Lucy Liu, and Aidan Quinn. But his background is rich and one of a kind. He grew up as an opera singer, studied cartography in college, was a major league soccer reporter, and even had a stint as a competitive gamer. Needless to say, Jeffrey's eclectic life experiences seep into his work, including The Republic of Sarah, the idea for which was inspired in part by his university studies in cultural geography. In this episode, Jeffrey tells us how the idea for Republic of Sarah was sparked and how he rose from the ranks of Hollywood intern to writer to producer and ultimately to showrunner. He also tells us what it takes to become a successful television writer and how Hollywood's corporate culture for writers has changed and how it hasn't over the last decade. Jeffrey is wicked smart and has a lot of wisdom to share about writing and showrunning, and I think you're really going to enjoy hearing about his journey into television. So without further ado, let's jump into my chat with Jeffrey Paul King. Jeffrey Paul King, welcome to Dream Path Podcast. Uh, thank you. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so I uh, got a chance to watch the first three episodes of Republic of Sarah, but I, I wanted to give you the opportunity to tell my listeners the origin story of this show. I mean, it's a very original concept and very well executed from what I can see, but I, I don't know when on, what went on behind the scenes to bring this all together? How many years it took to bring to fruition? Yeah. Um, so I suppose it all starts with, with, a, with a CBS show called Elementary. Um, I, I graduated from um, UCLA. I have, a master's in, I have a master's degree in show running. Um, I happened to attend that very prestigious university in this weird kind of seven-year window where they had a whole focus in show running. You can literally major in show running. Um, and so out of there, I got <clears throat> very thankfully after stocking shelves at Trader Joe's for a few months, I uh, got hired on the first season of CBS's elementary. Um, and I did seven years on that show. I worked the entire run of that series. I was on that show and I just learned a ton, you know, and it was a bunch of really heavy hitting, awesome procedural writers and who really taught me how to be a TV writer, you know, over the course of 154 episodes. So what happened is as that show wrapped up CBS studios, called me and said, Hey, you know, you, you're a part of the family now. And you, we'd love the work you've done for us at, at elementary. And, you know, you have any ideas of your own and what do you, what are you thinking? You know? So I, I went in for a meeting and pitched them a couple of things that were maybe more kind of down the middle and things I thought they would like and nothing really kind of struck, you know, caught fire. And then literally this is a, one of those true Hollywood stories. Like on the way out of the office, I sort of said, Oh yeah. And I have this thing about this country, you know, as town, it becomes a country. And they sort of, the executives were like, wait a minute, like come back inside and tell us about that. Um, the idea itself comes from the fact that I'm just obsessed with maps, you know, like I, my undergraduate degree is in cultural geography and cartography. Mm -hmm. Um, and in fact, I, I am a published map maker. It's a weird fun fact, but, uh, but in college, <laughs> um, 
I went to Middlebury College in Vermont, and Middlebury is one of the few places left, one of the few institutions where you they have a dedicated geography department. You can major in geography. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, uh, I published a map my senior year at that school where I made a map of Boston's historic theater district and got put into a textbook. Um, so I've just always loved that. And, and the idea of how do you start a country was always really fascinating, especially since I'd studied and read about a lot of places in college that were this, not exactly this, but some weird kind of versions of this story of the show has happened, you know, maybe most famously, like there's a strip of land in Italy called Siborga. Um, and the basic headline is after the Napoleonic Wars, they're making this list of what Italy is going to be. And they put all these different pieces of land on it and they leave Siborga off that list because at some point, like in the early 11th century, the Pope had been like, this land belongs to God and you can't have it or, or something like that. So anyway, Cut to 1966, I think, and there's this guy who figured out that Seborga was never properly claimed by Italy and declared it independent. And to this day, right now in 2021, it exists inside Italy as an independent principality. Hmm. So it's not exactly sovereign, but it's like somewhat real that it has some level of independence. So all that stuff combined, you know, like for me was was where the show, the idea came from. Uh, and then obviously you need to populate that premise with with awesome characters. And I think on that front. Um, you know, I grew up as a, I grew up in New Hampshire. Um, I grew up as a bit of a punk rock kid. I was the only person in my boarding school with, you know, rancid posters on his wall. Um, and, uh, I just always, you know, the glossy six inch heel, perfect looking people never really appealed to me. I was sort of like the kind of blue collar rough and tumble type types. And so I think it was just about populating the show with people who have that kind of you know, anarchist spirit a little bit, subversive a little bit, kind of wary of of things like giant mining companies. <laughs> so yeah. that's the sort of how the show came to be. The, the, or the idea came to be quickly. The show itself was, we, I, you know, CBS got involved, the studio helped me develop it. I worked with two amazing production companies, one um, called Black Lamb, which is Mark Webb's shingle, Mark Webb of 500 Days of Summer and The Amazing Spider-Man. And then the other one is Full Well 73, which is kind of James Corden's group. Um, and then we all worked together to build this great thing. And then the CBS, the network, bought it, bought it as an idea and, and oversaw the pilot and stuff. And that was in, the, I think, 2019. And it was great. We made a, you know, a great pilot. It was different than the one that's on the air now. It had Sarah Drew in it from Grey's Anatomy and a bunch of other really amazing actors. And Mark Webb directed it. And, um, you know, I think it was a good pilot. Ultimately, the network, CBS, the network passed on it. Um, and so, you know, usually that means your show is dead, but then kind of low and low and behold, like three months later, two months later, the CW called, called me and said, Hey, we saw your pilot. Um, the studio sent it to us and we love it. And, um, you know, can we bring you in and talk to you about how it might live on our network? Um, and that's where sort of the whole thing started. I suppose I'll stop rambling now. <laughs> that's a no, long that's answer, a yeah. great, that's a great lead up to how this came together. So the origin story starts with really a very organic understanding of the fact that there are these sovereign entities that are out there and they're fascinating because you are a cartographer, you're a geographer. So it's not like you are sitting in a, in a writer's room and you're like, Oh, what, what is like a really gimmicky way to start a show? This came about very organically from something that you were extremely interested in. Yeah, a hundred percent. And I will say like, the the catchy gimmicky ideas I had as a young co-executive producer level writer, like those are the ones that didn't work in, in that meeting I was talking about, you know, where I would pitch the studio, these ideas. And it was like, yeah, this cop show that had this angle or whatever. It was only when I sort of leaned into what I was passionate about that. I think probably I came alive just as much as the idea did. So, mm. you know, I think that really helped sell it. And I think the other thing that's true is like, and this is something that speaks to maybe my larger perspective on creativity itself, which is just like, I think you also like, 
I just know my stuff in that area. Like I'm a big research nerd. Like I, it's like, I, I, if I like something, I want to know about it. I want to get involved with it. I want to study it. So, um, with Republic of Sarah, like, yeah, man, I, my, my life is steeped in, in geography and cartography and, and how, you know, the way in which place affects people and, and the anthropology of movement and things like that. So, um, I think it's just like taking that passion seriously and learning a lot about it then became kind of grist for the mill of the show. That makes sense. Yeah. Do you find that in the entertainment industry that the folks that do succeed and advance in terms of their career, that it's because of ideas that are organic and really steeped in passion for a certain subject matter versus, Hey, it's a cop show, except the cops are angels from heaven or whatever the, you know, like whatever the crazy gimmick that is. That is a great idea, idea Brian. Yeah. You should be, you should be pitching that idea tomorrow. Yeah. Cops are angels from heaven. I love it. The, um, heaven's gate. I don't know. That's, uh, that dates me a yeah, little right. bit. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I would say, honestly, I think the answer to that question depends on how you're defining succeed and success. So what I mean by that is just like, we all know, you know, like you, you can, success comes in many forms. And I think, especially as a creative person, you need to define like, what does it mean to you? Like, what kind of success do you want? And if that success is, I want to be rich. Okay. That's fine. Like I, there's no, there's no, no one way is better than any other. If you're, if you're, if you're, journey if your success is you know wealth and world domination i think you can find success with you know cop show you know like cop shows i say cop shows not disparagingly i came from one i learned about one for seven years but like you know stuff that's more down the middle maybe stuff that's more like ip reboots redos sequels right. stuff like that like and that stuff makes money it's it, like you know and this is mass media let's be real it's it's a capitalist enterprise and that stuff is great it entertains people it makes money it does what it's supposed to do so if that's your if that's your definition of success and it, and it can be for plenty of people who want to have families and send their kids to colleges and all that kind of stuff like that's great i think for me there's that other definition of succeed and success which maybe is like creative fulfillment like i feel like i'm making something i'm proud of or that i would watch or that i like and i think on that front then i would agree with you wholeheartedly which is like i think it only comes from indulging in something that you're really excited about that you believe in that you care about um and i think that's the stuff that i like to watch you know one of my dearest friends who's also a ucla alum is stephen canals who made pose for fx that show just pops off the screen because that's a world and, and showing trans people of color and their stories is something that stephen would die for it bleeds for you know and so and you can feel that when you watch the show so i think for me like that's what that's where i want to live in my own work and i think for me yeah like you have to have some passion for it for it to really pop i think yeah when you were creating the show and you're pitching the ideas and you're talking to cbs and they buy it and then it goes to um, cw were you thinking in terms of the constraints that those networks would have on the production for example this is all shot on a set at least it has like a gilmore girls vibe to it there's a downtown there's a diner and there's these very familiar, comforting, frankly, set pieces. And I, I don't know if that's just the network that creates that, or if that is you, you know, as the creator and the showrunner saying, all right, this is what we need to have these constraints to make it easier to tell this story on a weekly basis. If that makes sense. It makes a ton of sense. Yeah. It's a, it's a great question. Um, because I think the answer is probably it's a little bit of both. Um, but probably more of it comes from me just, just in terms of, and I'm not trying to say it comes from me because I'm the greatest. No, it's, it's just like, I think when you, when you're working in network television, I think it's, a, and this is probably true of any artistic endeavor, which is like, I think it is important to like, know your constraints, know which masters you serve, you know? Um, so I'm working for CBS and the CW. That's a network 
broadcast, you know, it's a network channel. So I know I've got to have act outs. I know that I'm going to have a budget of a certain amount. And that budget is a way easier to use if you have sets, if you have places you can come back to and use, you know, it's obviously a lot cheaper and more efficient to shoot on sets than it is out in the world. So certainly we shoot exteriors and we shoot on location sometimes, but yeah, having sets is like crucial to the budget of the show. So for me though, because I think I, because I come from theater, my first kind of writing forays were, were theatrical and, and, you know, I, I was at the Fringe Festival when I was 20 with my first play in Scotland to the Fringe Festival. Um, and the Fringe Festival is the kind of place where it's like, okay, you've got 16 square feet, a table and one chair, you know, and you're like, okay, <laughs> I'll make something out of that. Great. Like, I'll do something with that. So I always sort of, I'm a big believer in like constraints as the mother of all creativity. So for me, it's like, okay, I know I've got to have a couple of locations that are on sets. I know that this is the way the CW operates. This is the way that shows like this operate. Like, let's, mm-hmm. let's lean into that and let's yeah. embrace it. Um, and the question, of course, becomes then, like, well, can I make those constraints my own? Can I, can I make my version of those things really special? You know, I sort of often joke with people, like, if you want to, if you want complete creative freedom, go make indie films. Like, this is not the place for that. You know, right. like, the joy of network is, is, you know, you get to make it and they're, they're going to, it's, it's the, the trade off is like it's on the air and there's 13 episodes and you get to work with a team of people who really collaborate with you. So for me, it's like, you talk about the diner, for example, like uh, it's a great example. So sweetie pie is, is what it's called in our show. Um, you know, like one of the best pieces of advice I ever got from, from one of the writers in elementary was like, if you're ever going to make your own show, make sure there's a place where a bunch of people can hang out and talk. <laughs> like it's just a set you'll use all the time. So it was like, right. all right, well, let's do a diner. And then in the diner, like one of the things that I'm really proud of, I think is, is cool is like that question I was saying of like, can I make it my own? Can I make it cool? Can I make it a, a special version? And so like, if you look at our show, if you watch our show, the set decoration of that diner, the diner is covered in photos of what look like old heirloom, family photos and pictures, school portraits and stuff from all over the years. Here's a cool factoid. It's like what we did before we built that diner is we sent an email to our cast, to our writers, to our, our, everybody in the production and said, if you, please, if you want, send in your own family photos and we're going to take the time to clear them all. And put them in the walls of Sweetie Pie. Oh, very and so cool. we actually did all the paperwork. Yeah. So like for us, that diner, those photos in the wall, those are photos of like my parents, the our actors' parents, the grips' parents, like people's dogs. And what that does for us is it means that when our actors come to work, when our crew comes to work, they feel like they're in a place that feels like home, mm-hmm. feels like that diner should feel. So I just look at it as like, yes, they're constraints, but constraint is maybe not even the right word. It's it, I think they're like opportunities, you know, mm-hmm. like it's just like a chance to like, all right, well, how can you get over this hurdle creatively? You know? Right. I think there's a certain benefit to having that familiarity every single episode. And there's a reason why folks watch Gilmore Girls, Veronica Mars, and those types of shows over and over and over again. Like my wife will watch a series seven times, eight times. She'll just go back to it. Same thing with my kids. And I do the same thing with certain shows, but the familiarity that you have, it's like, okay, you can always count on it in a show. That's always going to be there. It's always going to be where characters can go, as you say, like in the diner to, to talk, to come up with ideas, to process problems and drama. It's just a brilliant design of a show to have that familiarity of the set. And to also, as you say, personalize the set so that everybody feels connected to it. That's awesome. Yeah, I, I, yeah, and it's it's some of our actors you talked about too, like um, about how like they'll be doing some dramatic scene in there, and they'll look over the shoulder of their co-star and see a photo of their parents from when they were in you know in the '60s. It's like, and it's just how that in, informs them. I think the other thing is like just to, to your point. 
that kind of familiarity, like not only is it comforting on screen, but I think that's also just true to life. Like my own life in Los Angeles here, like my wife and I go to the same five restaurants all the time. Of course, right. we do. you know, like you just, you, you, you know, everybody carves out a life for themselves. that actually has a lot of repetition in it. So mm-hmm. like putting that on screen also feels not only comforting, but, but real true, mm-hmm. but true, you know? Well, how, how did you approach the first episode? And I, I did not see the pilot for um, CBS, but I did see obviously the first episode of this CW season and it went very quickly. Like things just boom, boom, boom. And, and I got the impression that that was probably a network constraint where they're like, all right, Jeff, set this thing up. So the audience knows exactly what's happening. It's all making sense and it's coming together in the course of 42 minutes. What was your approach to balancing, not moving too fast and trying to cram too much exposition maybe into the first episode versus, you know, listening to the network folks and you know, carrying out their orders. Yeah. It's the writing pilots is incredibly difficult. Um, but I, I sort of love it. I don't know. I mean, I, and I think to answer your question, like, I think the the way to think about a pilot is like, what's difficult about a pilot is to use a very ham-fisted analogy. It's like a pilot is like both the fuse and the dynamite, right? Every other episode can just be the dynamite can just be like, boom, wow, exciting. The problem with the pilot is it has to be the fuse and the dynamite. So like, I think the first thing that, that is important to do is when you talk about like the fuse part of the pilot, that's the part where you're like setting up what the show is. Like, what are we, what is this show about? Who are the people in the show? And what are you expecting to see every week on that front? I think answering that question is really important. It's you have to take time to figure out like, what is my show and where does it live? And a good example of that for us is like, you know, in the, in, in the course of the first episode, they go from this idea of declaring independence to becoming, to basically doing it which of course is insane, right? It's really fast. It's very crazy. Um, but I think part of that is because we knew that like where our show lives is in the creating of the country, not in the fighting to become the country, right? You could have done an entire season on like the legal loot, like wrangling that would that comes from creating a, a new country, right? Like look at right. the history of any real country. What is South Sudan is the most recent country that's been on, on the earth, you know? Yeah. It takes years to do that. So like, for us, it's just a matter of sitting down and being like, look, what our show, our show is not a hard-hitting legal drama that like intellectualizes how you create a new country. That's not the show. The show is the fun of what happens if you are a new country and you have to make a country from scratch. So it's like, how quickly how can, can we get to that point as quickly and logically as possible? So that's the first thing. The second thing, when I say like the fuse and the dynamite, is the pilot, however, cannot just be set up. It has to also be interesting and fun in its own right. It has to have its own explosion, its own, oh my God. And so that's where like, then you have to figure out, okay, here's what the setup and here's knowing what my show is going to be five, six, seven episodes from now. But then inside the story also, can we also make it, you know, an A story, B story, C story that has a beginning and a middle and an end. So it's like, it becomes about and spoilers. If you haven't seen the pilot, but like, you know, there's a blackmail plot where somebody tries to blackmail Sarah and that has sort of a beginning and a middle and an end as far as like the resolution of Sarah versus the mining company. And that's interesting. It's got character moves and whatever. There's a really great sort of teenage love plot about one of Sarah's students that has a beginning in the middle end and is great and has twists and turns and awesome scenes. So it's just about doing two things at once in a pilot. And that's, what's difficult. But again, I think it all is, it's really ultimately the headline is like, you just have to know what you are, like, what kind of show are you, what are you trying to make and lean into that? You know, you can't be all things at once. So we, you know, if you look at like some of the reviews of our pilot, yeah, they were just like, this is ridiculous. It goes so quickly. 
this would take forever. And it's like, I agree with you, but our show is not, I don't want to do, we're not going to do 20 episodes on a, a West Wing version of a courtroom scene where we're fighting for independence. That's not what the show is. Right. So we have to just get to what, you know what I mean? So that's right. just about knowing that and embracing it and being confident in it. Well, this may sound like a crazy analogy, but I kind of look at Republic of Sarah almost like in the setup, almost like Walking Dead because Walking Dead doesn't have a huge setup. You know, you just have to like accept what is happening pretty quickly. <laughs> like there's zombies, there's been an apocalypse of some kind. And then very quickly into the series, just a couple of episodes in, you realize this is not about zombies. Like, yes, there are zombies there, but it's about the relationships. And I noticed that with Republic of Sarah, it's not really about secession. It, it's not, the, you know, political. It's it's not a statement. It's not like a statement against America or American, you know, colonialism or, you know, it's just about relationships. And so it's just a nice, it's a nice backdrop and it's really fascinating to have, but you really very quickly to start paying attention to what's happening in terms of, you know, Grover and Sarah and Danny and Danny and Sarah's mom. And it, and it becomes something more special for sure. Yeah. It's, it's, a, I think it's a great analogy. Uh, like there actually is something weirdly Weirdly, the show actually sort of has shares a lot of DNA with like sci-fi, traditional sci-fi, which is just like take this giant conceit, this world-building idea, and then let's let some characters live inside it. You know, you, <laughs> we could call our show poly sci-fi, um, where it's just like, yeah, it's like, you know, sorry to tell you, like the Matrix is not about the Matrix. The Matrix is about one man's journey to realizing who he should and ultimately will become. You know, like, and that's true of any good sci-fi. And, and same with yeah, to your point, The Walking Dead. So, Republic of Sarah, it's not about like the legal language of how you build a country it's about what happens to people inside of that premise you know so yeah it's uh it's an analogy that works i think really well so tell me where theater fits in with you know your undergraduate degrees in cartography and cultural geography and then you know ucla where does theater fit in with that so i when i was a kid um i used to walk around the house singing uh i just as a lot of kids do but my mom um my mom is a is an accountant and she's she's very industrious and she's the kind of person who's like you like singing let's put you in a chorus like let's do it and you're like okay so when i was seven years old i i, I tried out for and got into a, a children's course um in in massachusetts called the trouble chorus of new england um and sort of only after i was in it did i discover that it was actually sort of an elite thing it was quite a very it was quite a talented group um and so ultimately what that resulted in is, uh, is I, I sang opera professionally for a couple of years when I was a kid Wow! because, uh, yeah, um, the, I was in this chorus and at one point the Boston Lyric Opera Company called up and said, Hey, you know, Carmen, actually, no, sorry, it was Labo M. Labo M famously has a children's, a part for a children's chorus. And they said, you know, send us your seven best kids to be in this opera. And I got sent to that. And then they needed a, a boy to be, you know, the ghost of Charles II and E. Puritani. And like, long story short, I ended up doing six operas with the Boston New York Opera Company. Sometimes I was a supernumerary. Sometimes in Tosca, I sang the part of the shepherd at the top of the third act, which is like got me into the opera union. And it was, like, you know, as a paid singing soloist part. Opera um, union. I didn't know that existed. Yeah. 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 And so I spent my like formative years, like my elementary and middle school years, like in tights and wigs singing <laughs> opera like, professionally. Um, That's awesome. I was still going to school, but like, yeah. And so I, I just got really excited. I fell in love with theater early. Um, and so I started to, you know, I went off to, I went to boarding school, as I mentioned. Um, and like, you know, I think because my parents are very, my mom's an accountant, as I mentioned, my father was an engineer. My father got sick when I was 11. Um, he had a bunch of strokes at once. Uh, 
and lives now and, you know, got moved to a nursing home basically and, and still lives there to this day. Um, and the only reason I say that is just because I think it's like the lesson of my mom being an accountant plus the lesson of, my, you know, when my father getting sick taught me was like sort of how frail this whole experiment is. <laughs> this thing that we call life is can be taken from you very quickly. Right. Um, and so I liked theater and I liked opera. And so when I got to like high school, I was just like, well, I like, you know, I want to make my own. And I just started writing plays in high school. So that's where the theater thing came from. And like when I got to college, I always liked movies and TV and theater and I was writing plays, but you know, a lot of, I don't know, like a lot of the theater majors were wearing black berets and smoking clove cigarettes, you know, it just was just like, <laughs> it's not, it wasn't, it wasn't sort of mentally stimulating enough for right. me, you know? So I went off to the geography department. Um, but yeah. And then the real kind of breakthrough came, like I said, I, I had a friend, in, a friend who's British who had, who had been to the fringe festival um, with a piece of his the year before I went and sort of said to me like, dude, you could do it. You, it just takes sort of gumption basically. Um, and so I wrote this play and, and we raised $17,000 and, and I took six kids. We were all like high school, so- or college sophomores, like to, to Scotland for the summer, basically, and performed nice. this play 25 nights in a row, you know? Yeah. Like with real audiences and real tickets and real crowds. And, um, so, you know, our smallest crowd was four and our biggest was like 68 or something, you know, this little tiny black box theater. And, and, um, so that was, that was the hook for me. Like watching people laugh at this kind of far side written, like it is like, it's like heroin, you know, or what I imagine heroin feels like, you know, it's just yeah. like, it's so intoxicating. So that's where theater came. I also just liked like the thing I like about theater and it's, it's often advice I give to the younger writers, which be like, Oh, how do I get into the business? And I'm up, my sort of first piece of advice always is like write plays. Mm-hmm. Um, because there are two things that are, that are special about, about there's two things that make theater really special. One, there are no rules. You can do scenes that are 27 pages long. I can't write a 27 long page scene for the CW. You just can't do it. <laughs> right. um, you know, that's one. And two is you can put it on. So like when I was still UCLA, my friends and I rented the Meta Theater on Melrose here in Los Angeles. And we did a night of short plays together. And, and people came and watched mm. them. And so you can do theater. You can just put it on in a garden if you want. So it just really, I love the blue collar nature of theater. It's like, oh, the lights need hanging. Great. I'll get on the ladder and go do it. Oh my God, this, the tickets need selling. I'll go out and yell for an hour about how we're having a show starting soon. You know, like there's just something about the teamwork of it and the kind of doing all things mm-hmm. that I think is very mirrored by being a showrunner. Um, ultimately, it's, it's theater is a very good starting place if you were looking to be a showrunner. Fascinating. So what made you decide to major in your, you know, get a master's in showrunning? That's very specific. Yeah, it's, I got, to, so I was an assistant at the United Talent Agency, which is one of the, the biggies out here, um, you know, doing the classic, like get coffee and get yelled at and answer phones and stuff. And, yeah. um, and I went to Sundance a couple of times and it was great. I learned a ton and I, and I wanted to write and I got into UCLA and when I got there, I was like, oh, I'm going to do movies and whatever. And they had this, they had this, it was called the showrunner track back then. Um, and you had to audition, you had to submit a piece of writing sort of, uh, to get into it on top of, you had already gotten into CLA and you sort of do a further audition. Um, and I did that cause I thought, well, you know, like I said, I'm, I have a CPA for a mom and economical, it's the same amount of money, <laughs> but I get more for my bang for my buck. I'll do it. Right. Great. So I auditioned for the TV track, got into it. Um, and they basically, they call like 10 kids get take kids, people get taken and they spend those 10 people spent, take a bunch of classes together. They're just together as a group the whole way through. Um, and, uh, like my first day of television class, I was like, Oh my God, this is what I want. Like, this is, this is forget movies. I mean, like almost instantly I was like, forget movies, TV is where it's at. Um, there's just so much more fun. You get to grind, you're doing it all the time. You get to do, you know, in, in the old adage is like in film directors have the power, uh, right. in TV, the writers do. So and what year are we cool. talking so about here? What, what year were you, uh, or years were you going through this program? This is, I started in the fall of 2009. 
So okay. it hadn't quite yet been like the, the streaming revolution that, you know, Netflix still came on DVDs at that point. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but so I think I, maybe I was a little early to the party as far as like, wow, TV is the future. TV is where it's at. Um, but it was certainly happening in that moment. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, so the fall of 2009 and the program basically was the first year was comedy and the second year was, um, was drama and and I loved it. I was really happy there and and, and you know and I I was I mean UCLA is a pretty serious place. You know I mean in my little ten year group were some really heavy hitting people, people who've gone you know like I so I got to I was working and learning with the likes of like Amy Aniobi who's an executive producer at at um, Insecure on HBO and Jason George who works at Netflix and Lisa McQuillan who was on Blackish like people who've gone on to have successful careers. Mm-hmm. You're with some really heavy hitting young writers in that program. So I was like really you know, you put through your paces. It's awesome. And you do, you do like full runner, you know, you get to pretend to run the writer's room and you get to do all these cool things there. So that's kind of the diesel experience. And it was great. And because of that too, I ended up being able to intern places because I was a student. So I ended up in the writer's room at brothers and sisters for a bit, you know, that Sally, Sally field show that was on for a while. And Mm -hmm. from there I went over to Grey's Anatomy. I was an intern at season seven of Grey's Anatomy and, and learned a ton from Krista Vernoff, who's obviously a huge heavy hitting writer and she's awesome. And she's a bit of a mentor for me. And so the whole experience for me was really positive. And I really felt like I learned a lot. Like it was the kind of place where put it this way. It was the first place where I'd gone where I think sometimes arts education can be a little too soft around the edges where it's like, Oh, there's no wrong answer. You know, art is art. You just make what you want it, what you feel. And yes, that's a certainly true. But but <laughs> making art for money is a different thing. Like if yeah. you want to work in yeah. the studio system, you know, as soon as capitalism enters the equation, that's a whole different thing. And UCLA was really good. There were professors there who you turn a scene in or something and they'd say like, no, not good enough. Like not funny <laughs> enough. You're missing Joe. And you go, oh nice. shit. Okay. Like, you know, and I like that. I, I was, I, you know, I was, when I was playing sports, I was responding to coaches who were like, just give it to me straight, you know? Mm-hmm. So they were just really good about saying, no, this has to be better. You Concrete. Know, to be tighter, cut a page. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And that's, I, I was so excited about that. I love that. You see, like, As you may have noticed, there are great resources and advice mentioned in all our episodes. And for many of them, we actually collect all of these resources for you in one easy place. Our newsletter. You can go to dreampathpod.com slash newsletter to join. It's not fancy. Just an email about each week's episode featured artists, and resources to help you on your journey. Now, back to the interview. So the show running major, you're there with like 10 people, pretty elite program, it sounds like. Did you feel like playwriting and putting on plays prepared you in a certain way because of the the constraints that you have on a stage and the constraints that are present in every television production? I think so, yeah. I think it was a really great training ground for me um because of a what you're saying about with the constraints the other thing though that, that's true that i like that, that i thought was, that really helped me as far as my experience like at the fringe festival and writing plays was just like was the grind of it if that makes sense which is like tv it, uh, i like this about it but like you are constantly running on a set of train tracks and there is a locomotive behind you that's what tv is mm-hmm. which is like we need pages tomorrow because we're shooting tomorrow you know like it's like oh my god i get a rush from that i like that it means you just keep working um, and so theater is, is similar to that only just because like, you, you, there's no ability if you're putting a play on, like you just have to roll with the punches in theater, like to your point about constraint, like, um, either the set doesn't, isn't working or the space is too small to do something you want. So it's like, rewrite this now, you know, like, and you're like, oh my God. And so you're rewriting this thing because the play is going on that night or whatever. Like it's, there's something very workman about it, mm-hmm. um, which I always liked. So that was, you know, I think it was helpful as a background. Yeah. Yeah. I've talked to other filmmakers too about television versus 
film. And there does seem to be a grind that you either, you know, lean into and appreciate or, you know, put up with depending on your perspective. But the television grind I've heard a lot about is, you know, you obviously have a schedule and if, you know, it's a weekly deal, but also the steadiness of the income too, I would imagine is pretty attractive to folks in the entertainment industry. It's like, you know, you have a whole season that you can look forward to like, Oh, we're, you know, we're good for a season or we're good for two more seasons. So do you find that now that television seems to be in like a golden age, everybody is putting on amazing shows on so many different networks, so many different streaming platforms that there's more folks that are gravitating toward television as opposed to film? I think so. Absolutely. Um, for, for a bunch of reasons, you know, like one of the things you mentioned is absolutely true, which is, yeah, man, you know, we, ideally we all have lives outside of the work and TV is a more sort of consistent lifestyle, which is, yeah, you can, you can depend on a paycheck and it's kind of a week to week thing, especially if you're on a steady show. I mean, I was, I'm so grateful to have gotten onto elementary. I mean, that was a very steady job for seven years. It was like an a very amazing good show job too. where, yeah, you had exactly. Yeah. And people yeah. really liked it and you got to sort of stretch your creative muscles, but also like, yeah, you have your weekends and you're, you know, you kind of know what to expect and you're sort of, you can take care of your family if that's what you need to do financially, things like that. So there's, there's that element to it. I think also like in this day and age in TV, like I think TV is really where creativity sort of is flourishing most at this moment, I would say. You know, what, there's this kind of joke like nobody's making movies anymore. It's it's either you're making a four hundred million dollar Marvel movie or you're making an indie film for ten dollars on your iPhone, and there's nothing in between. Yeah. And so for most people, unless you're doing one of those two things, there's not really anything for you in features anymore. Whereas hmm. TV is this awesome, you know, this like utopia of like, what do you want to do? You want to you want to make a show called The End of the Fucking World? And the episodes are eleven minutes long. Sure says Netflix, you know, like it's just as you want to make a really fucking introspective, interesting examination of, of rape culture, you know, like, especially among people of color. Great. I may destroy you. Here it is. You know, it's, it's like, you want to make a fucking, you want to put a bunch of people in Victorian clothing. Great. Downton Abbey. Like, it's just the, it really is the place where you can make the thing you obviously within reason, like want to make. Um, mm-hmm. And so I do think that's what's really pulling people more than like, oh, it's more stable or more money. I think it's just the ability to really kind of indulge in some of the things you want to do. Um, That's, I think, the joy of it. Yeah. And I think if you just follow the money, too, and you see where Apple and Amazon, you know, and their original content that they're putting on, you know, they're going there for a reason. That's where the eyeballs are. You know, people are paying attention to television. They're just not watching movies as much. And I, you know, I cover Sundance and I, I go there and um, interview a lot of folks that have films at Sundance, but I feel like the challenge has gotten even more insurmountable over time with Sundance because there are so many different places to watch movies and there's not a lot of folks going to theaters anymore. So that type of filmmaking is more difficult to do in terms of finding financing and folks that are going to be willing to put money into that type of investment. Yeah, completely. It's such, it's such an uphill grind. Um, and by the way, the other thing that's, that's so tricky about it, like, especially that kind of filmmaking is like, it's an uphill grind that often you're doing nearly by yourself. Like, you know, whereas TV is a team sport, man. And like, I love that about TV. Like if you're even on the writing side, there's a writer's room, you know, like certainly I am, I am the captain of the ship, but I'm not the only one on the ship. Thank God for the rest of the people on the ship. You know, like, yeah. thank God for the other writers. Thank God for the other executive producers who I'm like up late and I'm freaking out about something. And one of my producers will say, 
dude, let me handle this thing. And we'll have, what about this? And I mean, it's just, it's such, it's so awesome to have that support. And certainly people who make indie films, often it's like a group of people doing it together, but there's really like a team element to TV that also I think is just really nice. It's just like, why, why kill yourself to sort of do the auteur thing all alone in an empty room when like TV is like, yeah, you can just sort of call on your friends and family as it were to help you push this ball up the mountain. Yeah. Very collaborative. And everybody has their lane that they stay in and you know exactly who's doing what. Tell us about your writer's room. What does your writer's room look like in terms of diversity? The reason I ask that question is I follow a lot of television writers on Twitter. And how do you approach that as a showrunner? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a great question. It's a, it's a timely question, certainly. And I think for me, like, there's all this sort of politicized discussion at the moment about like, oh, okay, who deserves the job and what do they look like and all that kind of stuff. And for me, all that is sort of bullshit. Like I, I want a diverse set of writers, not because I want to take a bunch of boxes and, you know, so I don't get canceled. I want a bunch of diverse writers because it makes the show better because, the, because it's more interesting because they like people who don't look and think like me are going to see the world and experience the world in a completely different way. And like, that's, that makes for better drama, better writing, better discussions. So like, again, this whole thing of like, Oh, you know, they're making diversity come to town. Like, fuck that. Like diversity is better for the products, better for everyone's brain, like in terms of in the writer's room. So mm-hmm. our writer's room, like it was majority female. I think we were exactly half in terms of diverse. We were very small. Um, you know, and by the way, like our, our editors were majority female. Our directors are majority female on the show. Like our cast is majority female. The, the female thing is big for me. I'm, as I mentioned, my father got sick when I was 11 and um, after he was gone, gone as in the sort of the version of him that was, you know, him um, after he was gone, like there weren't really any adult role models in my life. Or there were few and far between. Whereas on the, on the female side, my mom has had this gaggle of kind of amazing, strong women who became this sort of um, wonderful group of kind of aunties and grandmothers for me. So all my heroes are women, you know? And so the show like is very female driven. Um, and I'm very proud of that. And so the registry itself, like, yeah, it's, we, we tried to get as as much as we could within the budget because obviously you know you still have a budget to deal with i mean building a writer's room is sort of like fielding an nba team you know you could have a couple of rookies and a couple of mid-level people and a couple of all-stars and you kind of try and balance the budget that way yeah um and so within within the budget like yeah it's about can i get people who see the world differently than i do um both because it's better for storytelling but also because we have characters that aren't straight white men i'm i'm a straight white male and i think the best thing, the best thing I can do as showrunner is to just be always be aware of that. Here's who I am. Here's 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 what privilege that affords me. Here's what that means for me in the world. As long as I'm aware of that and I'm honest about it and what that means and, and the shortcomings it maybe gives me, then then you can engage with other people who are different from you and have really honest conversations about how it's how that experience is different than a young black woman and that's different than a trans person who's who defines as Latinx or you know whatever. So. Um, our writers room is really spirited. We, uh, we had great writers. I was really happy to have them all. And, and a lot of them were able to like really contribute to specific kind of storylines in the show. That was really the joy too, where it was like, I'm, I'm a person who, again, I think because of this, I always go back to this theater thing where it's like, I'd rather figure out what we have and what our constraints are and go from there as opposed to trying to fit something into, you know, a square peg and round hole. So what I mean by that is, okay, I'm not somebody who's going to say like, this is what the show is going to be. These are the arcs that we're doing. And I need writers who can do these arcs. I'd rather find awesome writers and then say to them, what's your life experience like? Mm. What do you, what have you wrestled with in your life? What do you, what do you believe in? What, what scares you? What do you, what stories do you want to tell? Okay, let's do that. Let's go in that direction. Mm. Um, and so that's, I think, just how you get stories that are more organic and that are better by, by, you know, kind of maybe subverting your own ego a little bit. Like, yes, it's quote unquote, my show. I am quote unquote, the showrunner, but like, 
it's that's not it's not useful if I'm just everything is just me making decisions. So we got amazing stuff out of my out of our writers and and by the way out of our cast too. Like one of the things that we did right away was the writers were hired and then in the first week of the writers' year we scheduled one on one meetings with every single one of our casts for the writers just to to meet them to know them to say hello and also for the cast to say like Russ to say to the cast okay. What's your experience in life? Are there stories you want to tell? What scares you? What frightens you? What do you think about this character? You know, and really we got a lot of stuff out of that too. So, you know, specifically, there's a really awesome storyline about Grover, who's a who's a you know who's a black a black man uh, in the in the show. The character is black. Um, you know, Ian Duff, who's a delightful and, and wonderfully talented actor. Like, really, we had a conversation with him where he was saying, really portraying a sort of compassionate point of view about like mental health in the male black community is something I, I care about. I'd like to do that. And we thought, oh my God, great. So we just mm-hmm. leaned into it, you know, and that, yeah. that was, that was born. And one of my writers, you know, is also a, a black man who had experienced the loss of his wife at a young age, you know, and that was literally just coincidence. Um, but so like between those two guys, it's like, yeah, you know what? Like those guys are going to drive that story. You know, like I'm going to, my job then is to listen to those two people, tell me what that was like and ex- experience that and, and to let them have the reins on that. So that when we're driving in that direction, it's as truthful as it can be, you know? So I think it's just about like kind of juggling different voices and knowing when to obviously keeping, making sure everything that comes out of the writer's room is still sort of the show that we've sold the CW and it's still a show that's something I'm happy with and I'm proud of and, and is in the direction we'd like to be going. But, um, but that is sort of honors the different voices that are in the room and the different voices that are on the cast. What kind of advice would you give to a room full of uh, say high school seniors who want to get into entertainment, specifically film and television and maybe just specifically television, since that's what you've done most of, in terms of undergraduate degrees, college versus no college, moving to LA, film school versus no film school, those types of tips. Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. I mean, I think the first thing I would say, above all else, this is the best piece of advice I can give you, is um, <laughs> you have to be, you, you got to work your ass off. And I know everyone says like, oh, you got to work hard. Like, no, I mean, like, you need to like, work your ass off because if you're going to try and get into TV, then you're competing with Shonda Rhimes. You're competing with me. You're competing with, you know, like, and, and the work it takes is, is immense. So like you need to like really focus. I mean, the, the, when you get into the writer's guild, they always give you this kind of, they always give you this, you know, big welcome speech of how especially you are that you made the writer's guild, but they give you this statistic, which is true, which is that there are more people every year who become professional baseball players than there are who become professional TV writers. Wow. So like, that's how hard it is because of course the, with the minor leagues and everything. So like, it's that's how hard it is to do and and so i'm not i don't say it to scare anybody i just say it to be like so that's what you're going up against you know so to get there you, like so if you want to work in tv watch a shitload of tv study tv um learn about it like study format study form study like you gotta you gotta you don't go out on a friday night stay in and write your private you know like mm-hmm. i was working at uta probably 65 hours a week and i would get home at 8 30 at night and i would write till 11 like that's not an exaggeration and it's not me tooting my own horn i just knew they're like, shit, man, if I'm going to try and work in this thing, it's hard. Like it's, um, you gotta, that's, that's the first thing. I think the second thing is just like, you need to know what you want to do and you need to know yourself. And so what I mean by that is this, like the question of film school or not film school or degree or not degree. Like for me, knowing yourself is just about like, are you the kind of person that who loves school and is, and school is good for you and, 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 you know, provides you with something. If, if so, then go to film school. Like I was always good at school. I liked school. Um, I learned a lot from school. I'm somebody who like was into a teachers and I could sit there and I was into it. I have friends who weren't and aren't and didn't go to school and they're doing just as well, you know? So it's about knowing yourself and knowing what you need to, to thrive, you know, like, Oh, are you a person that writes better at night? Okay. Well then adjust your life so you can do that. You know, like yeah. um, all that kind of stuff. So, and then knowing what you want to do is, is crucial to so just in terms of like, 
I think people, when you say like, are you, what do you want to be? If the answer is I want to be a TV writer, like that's not a good answer. A better answer is I want to be a one hour drama writer. I want to be a comedy writer. I want to write hard hitting cable stuff about introspective, you know, like you, you need to be more specific because that'll help you to know, um, you know, like w- what you're focusing on, how you're writing, how you're working, whose stuff you're studying. Um, and so you sort of know your brand too. Like, cause I think when you start to write, like what kind of writer do you want to be? And then lean into that, you know, like wh- who are you, what do you know? So for example, like the pilot that got, that broke me, the pilot that like really got me attention and got me an agent and got me hired in elementary was like, it was called firecrackers. Um, and it's about a pair of brothers who moonlight as arsonists for hire um, in Detroit. It, it combines everything that's about me, you know, like my, the, the relationship, I have, I have a brother, my relationship with him is great, you know, like, but it's fun and it's up and down and it's, you know, and so like that, the central relationship of that pilot is about brothers. Um, Detroit is a really fascinating study of like urban decay and it leans into like carpet, you know, again, cartography, geography, cultural geography, like what has happened to Detroit in the last 50 years is fascinating. So what did I do, I read 60 textbooks about Detroit and like, d- you know, immerse myself in Detroit. And then that's a whole element of the, of the pilot. So it's like knowing who you are, what you can do, and, and, and then leaning into that stuff, I think is the best. This is the last thing I'll say is like, is, you know, it's, it's a thing you hear in sports is like no days off, you know, like um, anything that you do, do it, like do it to completion, work your ass off doing it. So like, I, what I mean by that is this, like when I was an assistant at Grey's Anatomy, I was an intern, I was a lowly intern. Um, and Christopher Vernoff, who, who's a, you know, a giant important writer at one point was just like, Hey, can you make me a cup of tea? Like most people are just like, ugh, I'm a writer. I don't want to make tea. This is bullshit. Uh, like, and I was just like, you, you got it, absolutely. Like, I'm going to make you the best fucking cup of tea you've ever had in your life. You know, like, and I worked hard to figure out what kind of tea does she like. Like, and I know that sounds ridiculous, but like, she noticed. Like a month later, she was like, this tea is great. Who are you again? What's your name? You know, like, oh, my name's Jeff. Great. Can you can you do this for me? You know, and then all of a sudden she handed me more tasks and more tasks, and she noticed the printer was never empty, and I was always there before her, and I always stayed late. And then you know what that earned me was this is a true story like it was late one night on a friday she was there late shonda rhimes walked in uh and gave her some pages to rewrite on private practice and she was frustrated and she had to be there late everyone else had left and i just said to myself like i'm not leaving till she leaves like i'm an intern i'm gonna be here till 1 a.m if i have to be this is krista like i'm, I'm if she needs tea i'm gonna make it for her mm-hmm. and so at, like midnight i'm sitting at her desk all my friends are out partying i'm there on a friday night krista called me and she said hey uh jeff come here walked into her office she said like you feel like doing some writing and I was like, yes, ma'am, whatever you need. She was like, great, take this scene that Shonda gave me and, and look at it. I was like, okay. Um, and I did that and I gave it to her and she called me in and said like, this is great, man. Who are you again? Where did you come from? And all of a sudden she then became a champion for me. You know, mm. like, and it all started because I made her tea well. You know, like wow. I, and then when I was up for the job at elementary, she called, she called Rob Doherty, the showrunner. She like wrote to him and said, you'd be a fool not to hire this guy. Mm. And that's, I'm, I'm, that's a huge email. It's a huge vote from somebody. She's a big time running Grey's Anatomy, you know, to have that person yeah. emailing my potential boss and saying, hire this guy. And like I said, it all came from making tea. So you just have to like anything that get you, if they want you to sweep the floor, sweep the floor, the best it's ever been swept in its life, you know, because people yeah. notice that stuff and they'll notice that you're a hard worker and they'll take, you know, want to take the time to get to know you and try and help you. Wow. That's a very long answer. That's a great great story. But I'm wondering if you're finding challenges with work ethic in younger generations, because I hear a lot of complaints of folks that run businesses, and this is outside of entertainment, but just in general, I think there's a value shift that's happening with younger generations. And I, I don't think this is necessarily a bad thing, but I think that younger generations are starting to question this concept of first one there, last one to leave, you know, sacrifice everything, 
to make the best tea you can for the for this writer or whatever the context is. But are you seeing that? Are you observing that in younger younger generations? I think, like I would say, yes and no. You know, I mean, I think to the point, the the, the question, the the doubt they have about the sort of system and like this, you know, this hey, work for free for three years, you know, that, that sort of stuff. That right. is bullshit, you know. Yeah. Um, and, and I'm glad it's being questioned. And and oh, by the way, the other thing that's great about these younger, like the younger generation, is like, yeah, they're also the generation who are like, hey, let's be nice to everybody and call people whatever pronouns they want. And like they, right. they bring this enthusiasm of like, let's be kind, which is right. also great. Because <laughs> by the way, Hollywood needed that, as we all right. know, from movements like Me Too and like uh-huh. this town, you know, was a cesspool morally and thank god for the younger generation being like hey stop treating people like that um i hope they, that continues you know yeah look the thing that's i wouldn't say that, that they have a problem with working on it, it's just that they've come i think younger people are coming from a place where like they have they have all these media has become democratized they may have been spent three years making their own youtube show by the time they show up to be the assistant at at my tv show for example or, or elementary so i think it's just a little bit of knowing like okay this is, this is, it's not that they lack work ethic. I think they just are used to working in a different way. They're used to being the kind of the rulers of their own kingdoms, you know? Mm-hmm. And now here comes a bunch of older people saying, no, do it this way. Hey, f- fill the printer, you know? So I think it's, it's not that they don't lack work ethic. I think it's more just that there's a shift in what that work looks like. Right. And it's about, can you embrace that or not? You know? Um, so that's less, you know, like the ethic is there. It's just like, yeah, you know what? Sometimes like this is, this is really an apprentice business, to be honest with you. You know, like I, I'll speak candidly. I have a master's degree from one of the most elite screenwriting institutions in the world. And I showed up at elementary thinking I was the shit and learned in about 10 hours that I didn't know what the fuck I was doing. Like I had zero (laughs) idea of how to write television. And I was coming out of one of the most elite schools in the world, you know, like, and thank God that like I knew enough at least to like keep my mouth shut and just learn from people around me. So like, I think that's the thing is they want to, people want to help you, you know, like people want to give, we got, you know, in my show this season, like we gave the writer's assistant her first ever script um, I was thrilled to do that. She's a badass, you know, and she worked her ass off doing all the bullshit that she had to do. She came, she was at elementary as well. And she was so good about everything that was asked of her. She did well, you know? And so it's like, that's a sort of rambling answer to your question. But like, I, like I said, I don't think it's a lack of ethic. It's just about knowing like, yeah, you know what? Like sometimes if you want to do a thing that other people are in control of, you may have to kiss the ring a little bit to learn how they do it. And then they're going to wa- want you to help them do it. You know, like, right. it's not like, Hey, get my coffee and then get the fuck out of here. No, it's get my coffee and let me read your script. You know, like right. Krista Bernoff ultimately did want to read one of my scripts and gave me notes on it. And how invaluable is that? Oh my God. You know, like notes from the woman who runs Grey's Anatomy. Good Lord. So it's just about, it's a give and take. It's, it's a showing some respect for people who've, you know, come, come before you, but, but, but not being so respectful that you're just getting trampled on, you know, to your point. Um, yeah. Well, tell us about the charity work that you do in heart health and, uh, heart attack and stroke research. I saw something online about a, an event that's coming up in October. Oh yeah. So my wife and I, you know, as I mentioned, my father is, uh, is the victim of, of what is basically a bunch of strokes. Um, when I was very young, it was a pretty, pretty traumatic experience as you might imagine. Um, so I think it's about like, look, look we, you know, being in a place of, uh, of having some success in Hollywood and, and I'm grateful for that. And obviously a lot of that is how hard I've worked, but a lot of it's luck. And I'm, I'm always aware of that. Um, you know, it's just about like trying to, do my best to get back to so the heart and health thing is just like i remember there's a, there was a writer at elementary um named jason tracy who's great he works at cbs now and, and does i think he's on the csi thing the, the reboot um 
but he's awesome. He's a, he's a guy that sort of is always kind of pushing people around him to say like, Hey man, come on. You know, like when you're in the position that we're in, we need to make sure we we're sort of carrying more of the load and that's that. And so he got me involved as, you know, sort of executives with a heart challenge and, and trying to raise a lot of money for heart and, uh, and stroke research, um, which is the thing I'm doing now. And then, you know, I have, an, I have a niece who has Down syndrome, so I'm I'm involved in giving some, you know, I'm hoping to try to trying to give a lot of money to to Down syndrome work and Down syndrome charities. And um, ultimately, I think it's just about like this job is a privilege, man. Yeah, it's hard to get, and yeah, you you certainly have to earn it. But like, it's awesome. It's it's a fun job to have. You can get it. It's, it's a privilege, and I think just trying to remember that and trying to make sure that you take the gifts that this job gives you. Um, and, and use them to good effect, both financially, but also even just on the screen. Like, can we tell stories that are helpful and are interesting and, and you know, are representative of people who may be struggling or, or help people feel seen, things like that. Like, that's also, I think, incumbent upon us. So it's it's sort of trying to be, I'm not, I don't mean to be, I'm not trying to suggest that I'm being charitable by, by telling stories of, of people who don't look like me. I just mean trying to be a good citizen of the world, I think is kind of important, um, yeah. especially when you've been, you know, lucky enough to, to make it. So can you tell folks, again, where they can check out Republic of Sarah and what the schedule is like for the episodes that have rolled out so far? Yeah. Um, so the Republic of Sarah airs every Monday night at 9, 8 central on the CW. And then right away the next day on Tuesdays, it is available for free. I will say out loud, dear listener, it's for free because it's nice. a terrestrial network. Um, it's on CW.com and the CW app. You can watch it for free. Uh, and what's awesome for the show is that it, it airs uh, every Monday with no breaks all the way through the summer. So there's a brand new episode every seven days of like clockwork. Um, we're not going to get interrupted by it's nice. We don't have any weird gaps or breaks or um, so uh, check it out. It's, it's a good one. It's a it's a it's a show that we're really proud of. And I think if you if you invest in it, you'll be rewarded. It really kind of blossoms over the course of the first season as it as it uh, expands and sort of finds itself. Well, based on the episodes I've seen so far, I agree wholeheartedly. It's a heartfelt show it's fun it's um got a lot of humor and heart and i recommend my listeners checking it out so social media the only reference i could see for social media for you is on instagram at jeffrey paul king tv is there any other place where people can find you online uh that is it that's me everything else scares me instagram scares me too um but uh, but uh, yeah that's it i will say there's a funny um, just FYI, there's another Jeffrey King who sort of does my job. He's a, he's a delight. He's a guy that, um, he works, he's an executive producer on the umbrella Academy for Netflix. Oh. Um, and he and I get each other's email all the time. I think his Instagram is <laughs> Jeffrey King TV. Um, it's really funny. He and I have sort of this weird, funny uh, relationship where, like I said, we get each other's phone calls often and he starts emails. We both do kind of the same job. So, uh, I'm Jeffrey Paul King professionally yeah. because he's Jeffrey King professionally, but, uh, but anyway, yeah, Jeffrey Paul King TV is the Instagram. Well, Jeff, thanks for sharing your story with us. It was a lot of fun. Thanks for having me. What a pleasure, man. Uh, thank you very much. Hey, thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If so, I have a favor to ask. Can you go to wherever you listen to podcasts and leave me a review? Your feedback is what keeps this podcast going. You can also check us out on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook with the handle at DreamPathPod. And as always, go find your dream path.